classical Christian schools are the best educational environment for raising boys to men. You know, it isn't uncommon to hear a parent, maybe even an educator, asserting that classical Christian schools are ideal for the grammar school days, but really boys are not so cut out for our seemingly sedate classrooms. Keith McCurdy is back to help us understand the unique way God has wired boys and how we can optimize their natural tendency in the classroom and in our homes. For sure, the world needs more confident, courageous, self-sacrificing, and humble men. Classical Christian schools in partnership with the home and churches are the way to raise up the next generation. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. Thank you, as always, for dropping me a note. Info at BasecampLive.com. Continue to marvel at what God is doing around the world um, in startup schools and established legacy schools and schools that are converting to classical Christian and hybrid schools. There are so many ways that God is moving, even urban, even rural. I was on campus uh, at my good friend Chris Brown's school here outside of Boise, Idaho, and he's taken in a uh, taken on a very interesting uh, challenge and opportunity at a 127-year-old school that has wonderful classical roots and continuing to anchor deep there. So Chris, a shout out to you in this episode, but love to hear from any of you. Info at BasecampLive.com. It is a blessing, even if you just send me a quick sentence, where you're listening from and what's on your mind. Well, special thanks in this episode to the sponsors, the Focus Group, uh, Classical Academic Press, and CLT, the Classic Learning Test. We appreciate your support and your partnership in classical Christian education. Well, as the world around us muddles in confusion regarding roles and distinctions of men and women, what does it even mean to be a man, to be a woman? Our students are growing up in this swirl of, of, of information and maybe misinformation. So how do we raise up a generation of boys that truly become godly men. What should we expect of them in our classrooms and in our homes? Keith McCurdy, who is a frequent voice here at Basecamp Live. Keith, of course, does our McCurdy Moments. If you've been around for any time, you know Keith is probably one of the best-positioned individuals to speak into topics like this and that he has spent nearly three decades in Christian counseling of families and individuals. He has met with thousands upon thousands of folks, and he also understands classical Christian education, having served at a school in Roanoke, Virginia as a board member and raised his own children, um, and knowing well the value of classical Christian education. So Keith and I sit down to have this conversation, which I know you'll find helpful and interesting. As always, if you want to know more about Keith or details on this show, check out BasecampLive.com. There is a page for each of these episodes where you can find out more and then Um, certainly reach out to him if you have additional questions. He's been on about a dozen plus school campuses just in the last few months. Keith is frequently speaking at parent education nights and connecting with folks who are interested in raising up the next generation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Keith McCurdy. Well, Keith, welcome back to Basecamp Live. Oh, thank you for having me back. I'm glad to be on with you again. It is. I, I know. I, I keep joking. You're, you're almost like the Basecamp Live co-host. You just so often <laughs> you're here. And, and I love that because um, as folks know, we, we're trying to figure out 
not only classical 101, but this parenting 101 is increasingly not so easy. And parenting by YouTube is probably not the best approach. So that's one of the one of the messiest approaches, I would say. So, but so yes, do people do people call you kind of the James Dobson of the 21st century? Is that what you become? Oh gosh, I hope not. <laughs> I, 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 I like to fly under the radar. <laughs> Well, your your radar is pretty big. We've been talking. I mean, you this fall you have been what a dozen classical Christian schools. Pretty big. Yeah, I, I think after next week I would have been to about fifteen just this semester. Wow. So I've done twenty five, twenty seven this this year. That is that is. Yeah. I don't know. It's any, a bunch. I don't know anybody else that has the um, perspective you have. Not only because you are with clients. I mean, just to give people a sense mm -hmm. of kind of the scope, I mean, so on a normal, I don't know, how do you measure it by the month? I mean, how many, how many families, young people are you interfacing yeah. with? Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably interfacing with close to 50 a week on any given week. 50 a um, week. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is. And so it's, so it's, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a large number on any given year. It's about 500 different families and individuals. Yeah. Well, all that to say, I mean, folks who've listened to the podcast know that your vantage point, as I like to call it, is so unique. I mean, you've also been the head of the board of a classical Christian school. So you get the world we're in. <clears throat> you get you get young people. You're untangling their messes every day. And you get classical Christian schools because you're traveling yeah. all around speaking at them. And so if you haven't had Keith out to your school, I highly recommend it because I don't know anybody that can do a better parent education night than what you do, Keith. And so there's lots of topics. And I appreciate, you know, there's a lot of things we can talk about because parenting is a critical ingredient to the success of a classical Christian school. So, oh, absolutely. So today, totally agree. With yeah. You. So today we're gonna we're gonna tackle a topic that a lot of these conversations, by the way, I always say at the beginning of the opening, you know, drop us an email info at basecamplive.com because it's always interesting. Like, what's on your mind? What are those friction points or questions or what do you want to call them? And one friction point question I often get is just: Is a classical Christian school the right educational environment for a boy? And it seems like, well, yeah, that's there. Of course, that's right for a boy. On the other hand, like I can get where maybe this question comes from because, well, honestly, a lot of schools are, are pretty, um, you know, sit, sitting in rows and wearing uniforms. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look like, you know, the dangerous book for boys book, if you've seen that. I mean, where boys oh, are, yeah. you know, catching things on fire. Like, we don't want that in the classical Christian school. We need you to sit right. quietly and read Homer, please. So, uh, Keith, let's just begin with the basic question. I mean, uh, which is, increasingly becoming a radical question are boys and girls different and how are they different? oh it's a great question yeah yeah i mean this it, this answer will sound sexist because it is yes boys and girls are different <laughs> okay uh, we, we we are made different we are wired differently you know i i don't think it's a mistake that you, i had a pastor friend of mine years ago tell me you know he said do you, you think about where adam was created he was created in the wild from the dirt well that sums up my son pretty much uh and and Eve was created from order in a place of order in Eden. And, and I don't think it's a mistake that we have that picture. And boys and girls are different. I, you know, I've coached, uh, I've coached basketball in a, in a school for over a decade. And uh, I'll give you a great example that we all have experienced. You know, I, I can be coaching a, a group of grammar school girls on the basketball court. They usually could care less really about the sport at that age. But I tell you, they will stop dead on their tracks to compliment each other's tennis shoes or to pick a barrette up, hand me a ball when I'm standing off the court and I'm their coach and hand me a Brett and say, can you hold on to this till after the game for me? I mean, it's just 
you know, we're little boys. They're out there trying to be the next Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Now that all changes when they get to about middle school. You know, you then see that competitive edge with girls really change in that world. But we see that difference early. You know, boys are wired so much more at an early age for that competition, for that adventure. Girls are wired so much more for that relationship, yeah. that personal connection. And and they're both wonderful parts, but they're definitely different. And we see it sure. clearly. Yeah. It reminds me, I think I've told this story before of the... Uh... The, when we launched a, a girls middle school volleyball team, seventh grade girls out there, uh, you say that maybe it happens, you know, their competitive streak starts coming on. We didn't see that because we were good. We were again, everyone was taught in the virtues of, you know, loving your neighbor and respect and giving, you know, so the ball comes over the net and these girls kind of look to one another. Go, no, 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 you can hit it. No, 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 you hit it. You hit it. And uh, the ball kept hitting right. between them about halfway through the game. They picked up on maybe. You should just go for it and uh, work out the courtesies yeah. later. But you're right, Keith. And I, there's a lot of there is a lot of uh, writings out there. I, I came across a book called "Boys and Girls Learn Differently" by Michael Gurian. Mm. He talks about it from really the biological standpoint. He says the brain stem is the center of the flight or fight response or survival system. It is on the bottom in the middle of the brain is the limbic system where sensory input and emotions are processed. Thinking occurs at the top of the brain, which is divided into two hemispheres. Right. And left, um, the left side is associated with verbal skills, and the right with spatial skills. Yet, this blood flows into a boy's brain and run down, runs down the right side of the brain and flows into the brainstem. Gurian says, when we tell a child to think before you act, we're actually saying redirect your blood flow from your limbic system and even from the <laughs> brainstem to the top of the brain before you act. So, this is again, boys who maybe are a little wiggly in the chair or impulsive. This isn't just because yeah. they don't have good character; it's because they're wired differently. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I mean, so many times, and unfortunately, my profession plays into this. When we see children, I mean, it goes really both ways. When we see young males that are very active and are always are, are turning every pencil or stick into a gun or a sword, uh, my profession would say, "Well, that's that's the you know the beginnings of toxic masculinity and you know right. whatever." But just the same, we also do little girls. You know, when we see little girls that are very emotional. Uh, which is also a little more of their wiring at an early age. You know, we we like now to say, oh my gosh, that, those are that, that's early indication of emotional um, dysregulation or, or childhood bipolar or all that nonsense. Versus, wait a minute, this is all normal developmentally. Yeah, doesn't mean it's all appropriate, but it's all normal. Sure. And 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 these are things we have to shape and train and maneuver right um rather than immediately labeling it as bad and in and in the school system especially you know little boys i mean they're diagnosed you know so many more times with attention issues because they are so much more active well these and so much more yeah off, off off script well the stats i have and you can so it's good to see you know what the statistics say i mean versus what yeah. you know it says the uh with regard to that um Boys are diagnosed with ADHD and learning disorders seven times more than girls, and the dropout rate among boys is higher. Teachers are more likely to say it's the boys that can't sit still or pay attention. Boys tend to be more physically aggressive and destructive. Um, you ask them if what their favorite uh, subjects are, they will say PE, recess, and lunch. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, that's a there are diagnosed disorders that tend to be more boy oriented. Right. It seems like so. yeah, and, and if it's if it's inactivity, if it if it relates to being disruptive in a classroom, not always wanting to stand in the straight line, then our our go-to is to label that as dysfunctional 
rather than normal in need of shaping. Yeah, that's right. And those are two very different worlds. So Keith, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting when you think about most grammar schools are teachers or whatever, the, you know, 95% are female. And the grammar school environment tends to be where we do pride ourselves in how well-ordered their desks are and that they walk in in habits, of course. I mean, this is really an important part of the formation, to your point. But yeah. where is that line where all of a sudden we've we've moved from uh, where we've not allowed boys to be boys? I mean, I think that's I think we don't want disordered classrooms. And to your point, we want to have opportunities to use this as a, as a means for shaping. But shaping is the end goal to have the boys sit there and and behave just like the girls. I mean, that's not the goal. But what? How do we? How do we right. untangle that? That seems very complicated. Well, it's the same whether it's with teachers in a classroom or parents in a home. It's really the same question. It's first getting getting rid of the lens of looking at everything psychologically. You know, trying to figure out anything that varies from the norm is clearly dysfunctional. No, instead, saying you know the vast majority of what we see with children is actually normal developmentally. But much of it needs to be shaped, trained, because they're broken individuals. Let me give you a great example of what I mean. Um, you can take a child that doesn't crawl yet. You can pick them up when they do not want to be picked up, and they will cold cock you in the side of the head. What, it, it, is, that, <laughs> is that dysfunction? Is that, you know, toxic childhood? No, that's just brokenness. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just an impulsive reaction. And, and while it's an inappropriate one, it's still normal. And so what we've really got to do is first look at most things through the lens of normal, but possibly in need of shaping, and then change the conversation to what behaviors are causing a problem and how can we more effectively address them, hold them accountable or shape them. But having a goal in mind that isn't a, a, all the little boys acting like the little girls. You're never going to get that. Yeah. You know, it's more or less saying, hey, what are the issues with some of the little boys, you know, that is disruptive in this process of what we're trying to do? And how can we more effectively shape it within, to, within the right freeway, not the exact lane the girls are in, but get it on the freeway? Uh, and it really and, and yes, it is a tougher conversation. And it does take a little more brain space to figure that out at times, but it's a much healthier way to approach it than what we are seeing primarily in the public system more, which is very early engagement of this is dysfunctional. Uh, they clearly need assistance, medication, or, or different things. You know, we go to that so quickly in the public system these days that it's it's mind boggling. Yeah, no, that's a great, I, and I think folks in our, in our, you know, they're in our audience are you know, appreciative and aware of those differences. I think it's just a matter again of what, what, I mean, I've often been in conversations with faculty in schools and the, and the, you know, the grammar school factors, they're frustrated because they say, you know, we, we work so hard to put these habits into place. And then, you know, all of a sudden seventh grade comes along and they're up there talking in the hallway and they're being disruptive and they're not being respectful. And all those habits seem to have gone out the window and the answer, you know, the upper school staff wants to say, well, we, it's okay if they don't walk in rows and, you know, going to classes in the upper school. But again, Keith, how would you, if you were in front of faculty right now, and we're, we're going to get, there's a lot of elements of this, but how do you say when, what is appropriate, what's inappropriate? And it's probably it's going to vary a bit by school, but clearly you don't want your juniors and seniors walking in rows or in straight lines between classes. But if we're on that spectrum is acceptable, and at what point do you become 
you know, because it's now a disruptive, unhelpful environment. I mean, perhaps that's obvious yeah, I, in some ways, but yeah. Well, I think the goal really is just having the conversation. I mean, I think it's starting the conversation. And I think that's where you can have, let's say it's a grammar school, you begin having that conversation about what really is our goal and what really is appropriate and attainable given we're dealing with both boys and girls. Because sometimes we just set the standard that says, you know, what what would the perfect straight line behavior in a hallway, you know, what would that be? And then that's our goal, yeah. that perfection. Yeah. And so I think we have to start the conversation that says, wait a minute, what is a healthier goal? What is, you know, what's optimal, but what also is, is good? Yeah. You yeah. know, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying bare minimum, but I think starting that conversation with folks that understand child development and, and teachers do um, versus the standard of perfect behavior. Sure. Because it is going to be different in different schools with different student bodies. But I think just starting that conversation is the key. Well, and I, you know, we're going to get a break in just a second. I want to come back and unpack uh, kind of the bigger backdrop that what's happening in our culture, sure. just the general emasculation of men and fathers. I mean, it's hard to raise up godly boys to men when the culture at large is so confused on that. And then how do we make sure our right. homes and schools are aligned there? But before we go there, I think just, again, thinking kind of in this classroom, classical Christian environment, you know, by the way, there's a great article that I came across Dorian Howell wrote back in the SCL Journal, which was a mm. publication back in 2015. I'll put the link in the show notes entitled Boys in Classical Christian Education. It starts early and her paper's really looking at the just the best practices within a grammar school context. But she cites an interesting another study. She says the average attention span for young boys is less than 15 minutes, less than 10 for preschoolers or kindergartner, and the average attention span of a boy's body is less than 10 minutes. So yeah, yeah. does that, that means you really don't want to be stuck in seat time for more than 10 minutes in the grammar school or, but then I could hear, I'm, hear others, you know, I can hear the teachers in our midst saying, well, that's ridiculous. So they need to be, they can be still for a lot longer and they can be. So again, mm -hmm. I'm kind of asking the question again from a different angle. I mean, where, where do you hit sort of design like that plane's going to not work because it doesn't have wings. Like you're not going right, to get the boy in right. the chair for 20 minutes. So are there some, right. what do those hard and fast rules look like? Well, I think some of those are really looking when you look at lesson plans, as an example, um, one of the things I suggest to teachers, especially early, you know, younger teachers is chunking your lesson plans, Ooh. you know, chunk them into, <laughs> into, Oh, I thought you meant chunk not, them like out the window. So yeah. No, not chuck them. Oh, chunk, chuck, them. chunk. Very good. Yeah. Clar clarify that. Yes. Chunk them into bite-sized right. pieces. Yes. And <laughs> right into bite-sized pieces, because a couple of things will happen. Not only will you have the boys better connected, you actually will make the material better uh, retainable to all the students. Um, you know, it's that old adage of, of the parents who come into the young kids and they give them a list of 10 things to do. And by the time, by the time the child gets to number two, they've forgotten the other eight things. You know, it's just, right. it's, it's not going to be something where they can capture so much at one time. And what happens is if you chunk it, it's just one, one skill learning to chunk the teaching over time, you will see the mastery and you'll yeah. know when you can make the chunks larger. Yeah. No. So it's, it's just, it's just having a very simple model um, rather than a gimmick, right. uh, you know, or learning 28 gimmicks, just a simple model of, Hey, we're going to, we're going to make this digestible in small chunks. And then between the chunks, 
we're going to do something different. We yeah. may have a quick activity. We may have something where everyone gets to 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 say something or to respond to something. We may make a switch and be be memorizing um, uh, a rhyme or something. But by chunking and changing things up, you keep it right. engaging. Right. Uh, because children, both boys and girls, learning can become monotonous very easily. Yep. Well, and again, so that's, I, no, I, th- I think that's, that's absolutely, again, it seems like it's obvious, but it's maybe not because I think our, it's hard for us as adults to be empathetic to really what it's like to be a child with, you know, hormones racing and energy or whatever, they're a different gender from you. And, and I think, again, the stereotypes are people that tend to work in classical Christian schools and maybe even parents who have classical Christian type homes, if you will, tend to be more. I don't know, comfortable with longer formats. I mean, adults, like their idea yeah. of a perfect vacation is to read a old novel for two hours and not move. And, you know, that's probably not going to work for the kids, even though you like You mean that. that's, not, that's not your perfect I, vacation? I, I only do 45 minutes, Keith. <laughs> no, but, I, but seriously, I, I remember conversations before, right. and I would, I've had conversations with faculty where I've said, you know, what would it be like if we actually made ourselves live out a normal school day, even at the upper school level, yeah. where it's like, welcome to school, uh, you got five minutes, get in a class. You got three minutes to passing period to get across 10 minutes of, you know, campus. But right. you got, we gave you three minutes. And, oh, by the way, uh, you know, I mean, we would go nuts after two hours. Yeah. Like, could I get coffee? Nope. Hur- you got to stay stay seated. Hurry, 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 hurry. Right. Sit here, be patient for an hour. Right. Hurry, 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 right. sit here, be patient. I was like, right. right. And it, how does that work against yeah. the frame of anybody, much less a boy yeah. who's, you know, so good point. Why don't we take well, a if, Yeah, if, go ahead. If yeah. we have, if we have a growth mindset. Yeah then we're starting small and building on it. And, and I think that's the simple way to look at a lot of education. We're starting with small bites, even ones that we feel sure will not be too much. Yeah. But we're, we're just going to start really small and then slowly grow them. That's how we grow capacity. Yeah. Well, and I think that's great. Great advice. And certainly as a school K-12 wide, like have that conversation, get your team together and just say, look, yeah, we don't want to walk into rows in grammar school, but we also don't want them swinging from the chandeliers in upper school. So how do we, how do we make this age appropriate, gender appropriate? So good, good, good points. Well, why don't we take a break, come back and let's again, kind of, um, kind of pull back a little bit on this conversation and look at just what's, what do you see happening in, in kind of our, in the world at large, especially where are men today? What are, what are we aiming for in terms of boys becoming men? Um, I'd love to hear your perspective. We'll be right back with Keith McCurdy. Do you wonder if the traditional system of higher education is the best way to keep your student on the path to flourishing? Are you tired of having to choose between a solid Christian education and practical, marketable skills? We've got good news. You don't have to settle, and your student doesn't have to make the choice between a solid Christian education and skills development. At Excel College, we've combined a world-class, classical Christian education with an apprenticeship model that allows students to gain hands-on experience in the field of their choice while providing them with the context to grow intellectually, spiritually, practically, professionally, and missionally, all the while graduating debt-free. At Excel College, students learn how to build a life, not just make a living. Want to find out more? Sign up for a virtual presentation on our website at www.thexcelcollege.com backslash visit. So Keith, I think of in my many years uh, leading admissions tours and interviewing families, many amazing high quality 
believing families have come to classical Christian schools and in their more honest moments will say, you know, we were completely convinced this is the right school for our daughter, but mm-hmm. our son, you know, he's kind of a, he's a handful. He's very energetic and he loves athletics. And I just feel like a classical Christian school is really more, it is more for a girl and we need to go look elsewhere for our boy. Um, what would you say to that family when they're having that, raising that question, that concern? Well, I think the first thing is I might introduce them to my son and many of his friends, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, multiple collegiate athletes and some other things, and yet they were classically educated. Um, you, you know, I, I, I deal with schools of every make, um, public, private, faith-based, uh, college prep, and I, I by far believe the best fit for a developing boy into a young man of good character is a Christian classical school. And, and I think it provides, a, you know, two key things. I mean, there are many, but I'll give you two that stand out that, that put it very much at odds with let's, I mean, not to pick on the public system, but it's an easy thing to see a difference. You know, the, the first is the Christian classical world provides the ability for a student, a young man to see and participate in healthy relationships. Because in the public system, if you have a conflict, if you have a problem with a peer, number one, one of the first things they will do at a very young age is separate you. They'll often change you, put you in a different class, and parents request that all the time. There are parents out there that are nodding their head right now. Yep, we've requested that. Could they not be in that class with that student anymore? Or that teacher. Um, (laughs) And or, or that teacher. And or when you're a little bit older in the public system, and I deal with this in my office all the time, you have a conflict with a group of peers, you go make another group of peers, or you isolate and become a loner, and it's very much allowed and approved of in a public system. If you want to be a loner, we'll let you be a loner. We'll affirm whatever it is you're claiming. And that doesn't happen in the Christian classical education. Because in this education, we value relationships. And when there are conflicts, when there are issues, you can't escape. And that is a wonderful thing. It's very uncomfortable for both parents and children sometimes, but it's exactly what we want because you cannot have valuable relationships in life if you're allowed to escape simple conflicts of grammar school or middle school. You know, the environment requires us to learn, to reconcile, to learn to deal with annoying people, to learn to be friendly, even if we don't want to be your best friend, but I've got to learn to live with you in this class. And that is that is invaluable. I, I can look at my children. I can look at hundreds of other kids that I know that have gone through this form of education. And across the board, a majority of them, I would say they have much better, not just, quote, social skills, but relational skills than their general peers when they get to college. And and can you and and in yeah. and in that process, they value relationships more by the time they're in in, in upper schools. And isn't that what I think that, we want too for our students? I mean, to be able to I mean, who wants to graduate and go off your first job and somebody's next to you and you don't like them and you're gonna quit your job. I mean, like what and, we, and that, as pathetic as that is, that's not uncommon today that Well, yeah. it's not. I deal with HR directors of companies all across the nation. And a, a common complaint is our employees don't know how to get along with each other. Yeah, they don't. They don't know how to coexist in a workspace with someone that isn't their best friend or who chews too loud or you know whatever it may be. Yeah, and 
And, and if we go back, if, if you ask parents, if you just say, look, if parents ask me all the time, what's my goal as a parent? And I, I have a myriad of different answers. One of them is we want to equip our children to learn to live well in a broken world with broken people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can't, we can't allow them to escape that process or to self-isolate for 12 years and think in college, it's miraculously going to come around. And so I think, I think one of two key things that the Christian classical world does for males, especially, it says you have a role in healthy relationships and, and they get to learn words like chivalry, character, and, and, we require young males in a classical world to step up into that role and to actually have appropriate, healthy relationships, not where they, as we see much in the world today, objectify girls in their class, but they learn to actually have relationships with them yeah. as well, classmates, as, as, as friends in a community. Uh, and, and so that's one. The second thing is that the rigorous nature of a classical education grabs boys in a real way. And let me define rigor. I, you know, 30 some years ago with the resurgence of classical education, I think we made a mistake and we began defining rigor let's, as let's make it harder on purpose. Um, and I think that we, we have felt the burden of that many times. The reason a classical education is rigorous is because it requires the whole per person to participate. It requires you to show up and be present. It requires you to have uh, an opinion, to learn to disagree and debate with a classmate, to, to learn to respectfully have an opinion and question a professor, a teacher. It requires the whole person to be present. It's the only form of education I've seen that consistently does that. Yeah. Public education, allows you, and in many cases, prefers you be invisible. And I will tell you, when a young man is invisible, he is not growing. You know, we, we hear in culture today, oh, toxic masculinity, blah, blah, you know, all that nonsense. I mean, some of that is a push against actually true, healthy, masculine traits of honesty, integrity, courage. But a piece of that are a group of young men growing up never learning to manage their emotional world in a healthy way. Yeah. But see, in the Christian classical world, that that is grabbed onto early on. We require you to participate, to show up, to be involved. And we teach you what is true character? What does it really look like in a man? What does chivalry look like? What do manners look like? Yeah. And, and I, I just have not found a better edu educational format for that. Well, I love the idea of stepping up because that is what we ask constantly. And I appreciate you sort of putting rigor in positive light because I do think you're absolutely right. Rigor is consistently used. I think it's a really bad word if it's not properly framed up because it does. It just sounds like come to our school, read the great books, chew gravel, and your kids are going to be better for it. And it's just, yeah. it's not beautiful or attractive. Nobody would say it quite that crassly, but I think the spirit of it is, is right. we just do hard things. We read 300 great books because we can read 300 yeah. and our kids are all bloodshot eyes, but isn't it amazing? Like That's not what we're talking about, but we're talking, yeah. I love this idea of pushing yourself to just do something that's you're, you're not comfortable with, whether it's sp right. speaking in front of people in speech meet or having well, to- will, yeah. Being willing to take a risk to- to jump into something, to engage it, 
where otherwise you never would. So do you think, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, I did this, you know, again, we, we don't exist as classical Christian schools, as, as parents outside of the cultural you know, moment that we're in. And I, you know, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, the understanding of what does it even mean to be a man and what is it, you know, the emasculation of men today, it's, it's significant. And you look at whether you can go analyze, I've thought about this, or just, you know, go take your top 20 movies that are out there right now and look at the role of men. And what is, you know, generally right now it's a, it's a female, probably minority character that's that's always going to be the lead because that's what one has to do to kind of be in the moment. Then times, that's great. Have that person in that role. But I think men are generally, it's it's a Homer Simpson problem. It's like the biggest yeah. buffoon in the entire family's dad. And I wonder, does that, where do you see, we kind of all know that at face value, but even within mm-hmm. our walls, do we inadvertently lean in or allow some of that to happen where the the only men that are in the school community may be honestly kind of weaker guys. They're the feel more like the librarian brigade that's come in. Are they you know, like we're the real men? Not that again, I apologize. I'm sure there's somebody who's listening to a librarian that's a male. That's fine. But I mean <laughs> I'm gonna get an email on that one. Um but, you know where where do our, where are heroes? Because we talk about classical heroes, yeah. but where are they? Do do you see where do you see culture leaching into our schools and our homes in that way? Well, a huge part of that I see is a less active role with many dads with their sons. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really do a, a large part of families when I deal with them, you know, primarily it's mom coming in, bringing children uh, when they're coming in to see me. And, and you know, it's it's less often that dad is, is in the mix. Um, one of the things I often require is I want mom and dad in together because, you know, they both have an active role. And much like we've already talked about, boys and girls are different. Men and women are different. Uh, and moms and dads are different and they both bring something rich and necessary to their children uh, and especially men to their boys. But it's interesting when you think about culture, the way we have defined manhood in the last, I don't know, generation or two is we've gone to two extremes. The one extreme is we have said um, maleness is toxic masculinity. So males are bad. Or the other, when we've tried to say men are strong, we've superimposed them against women, as in men are strong and women are weak. Men are dominant, women always have to be passive. So both of those are wrong, but yet that's where culture is. Those are kind of the choices we see. And so what happens is without a clear definition of manliness, of courage, chivalry, honor, being strong, you know, without those things, our boys have no idea what the target is. Exactly. Who are they to be when they grow up? Right. And so we've left a void. And when you leave a void, all of a sudden, other voices that never should be heard by your children are heard by your children, telling them all the different things they should be or could be or whatever. Yeah. And so I think we have a lot. I mean, I think we have a poverty of speech to our young men about what they're to grow to. You know, I, I heard this the other day. I thought it was great. <clears throat> a little kid told me this, and, I, and I, I need to find out who his Sunday school teacher was because it clearly came from a Sunday school teacher. And he said to me, he said, you know why David wasn't f- afraid of Goliath? And I'm like, no. He said, because he hung out with sheep. <laughs> and so I'm scratching my head and he's a little kid. So, you know, sometimes the full joke catches up later. Uh, I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking, hung out with sheep. And he goes, oh, 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 yeah. And he had to kill a lion and a bear. <laughs> right. And, and, and so the idea is 
the historical context of David's childhood prepared him for the great things God would call him to in life. Right. And so I think about what are the historical childhoods we're giving our boys? You know, what are we really doing? Are we giving them a childhood that is rich with adventure, rich with challenge, rich with responsibility? Because if we are not, why are we surprised at what we're seeing in our young men? Yeah. You know, it goes back to C.S. Uh, yeah, to Lewis and Abolition of Man. We, we make men without chess, yep. chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. I mean, it's that's what we're seeing. And do you think that the, you know, to my, again, to these extremes, you either have sort of this gladiator Rambo kind of persona as sort of what real masculinity is, or you've got sort of this tepid, weak um, and, and, and I think it really comes down right. to where are the heroes? And if, you, and if you're not going to yeah. go find them, I guess to just put a point on what you're saying there is, is if, if young men, women to different podcasts for later, but I mean, if men need other men further on the journey, which historically that idea of me- mentoring, apprenticing, I mean, we think about that right. all the time, the context of, uh, you know, a professor, a teacher, teaching them the academics or the thought leadership side of things. But I guess just sort of being, being a model. I mean, who, who's the, who's yeah. influencing? Hopefully their fathers. We've certainly their homes are well, healthy fathers, but I mean, what is that? Yeah. Well, here's what I see. Okay. Here's what I see happening in culture today is when a father is not engaging son, their son with, you know, I, I spoke to a dad's group not long ago and they asked me, they said, you know, how do you, how do we reach our boys? I said, well, if you want, you want to know the glue to a young man, a glue to a boy, that the message will hold is you need to constantly expose them to things that are new, hard, and dangerous. <laughs> now, dangerous in their terms, um, and sometimes in our terms, but new, hard, and dangerous. You know, we need to be people of great adventure. God gave us all of his creation to experience, and all of it is not safe. So we, we really need to be engaging the world in, in its roughness as well as its perfection. Yeah. And fathers, and so I said to these fathers, I said, so ask yourself, are you really engaging your boys in new, challenging, hard, uh, dangerous ways? And I had a group of about 25 men, and most of them said, yeah, not really. <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, here's what I see happening. When we are not engaging our boys in that way, when we are not the loudest voice of adventure and responsibility, those go hand in hand, when we are not the loudest voice they will seek other voices. In today's world, it is athletes and social media. Yep. Both of those worlds are unbelievably corrupt of character for the most part. And, and when we are not the loudest voices for adventure, responsibility, courage, and, and honor, you know, think of those things, they, they balance one another. When we are not that voice, they seek voices out, and the two loudest by far are yep. both corrupt. So I want to take a break and come back because I'd love to burrow in this a little bit. Where to, you know, so as parents and as educators, how are we becoming that loudest voice? Um, just because we read of some great figure in literature, or just because we read a Bible verse about a David, or you know, that that's good. We need those stories, but those are very hard in competition to modern athletes and social media in terms of the lure, the appeal, the engagement. So how do we counteract that as, as again, as men in the school, as fathers? And uh, Keith, I can't wait for your answer. We'll be right back after this break. 
He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. So Keith, kind of a broad question for you. Now that we're things are opening up and people are getting back into more typical routines, what are you seeing some struggles that, that families are having at this point? Uh, that's a great question. You know, one of the things I have seen so much in just the last month are parents coming in and just frustrated about how their mornings are going, especially with their grammar school kids and getting them started, getting them dressed, getting them out the door on time. And, you know, one of the things that I say, there's an old adage that it, the best way to prepare for getting up for church on Sunday mornings by what you do on Saturday night. And if we apply that logic to our young kids in school, the reality is we need to capture the evening. We need to capture bedtime better. And it's one of the most common difficulties parents have. Uh, you know, I don't know the number of times I hear parents telling me, oh, it's just so difficult at night. You know, we don't have any schedule. We don't really have a good routine. And so one of the most basic things we can do to really set our grammar school stu students up for the morning, but really for success the next day, is have a very simple routine. And the routine really needs to have two key factors. One is a time where the house shuts down. And so if the bedtime is going to be eight o'clock, let's say, or 830, then you need to shut the house down an hour beforehand. And that means everything shuts off. Even if you have older kids, TVs are off, games are off, activities are off. Everybody goes and gets ready for bed. Now, the older kids, if they're staying up later, well, that's fine. But you shut everything down so your younger children are not competing with life at that moment. And then the second thing you have to have is lights out time. And the simple motivator is you take a long time getting ready for bed. You have less time before lights out. You get ready really quickly. Then my goodness, we can read two or three books to you. And it's amazing to me when parents put the simple routine in and begin to capture the evening, how much improvement they see with their mornings. Yeah. And it seems like if you start that with your grammar school, it can't help but have a trickle down or up effect across the house. Everybody's kind of winding down and you're not staring at a screen at midnight and can't go to bed. So everybody. Absolutely. Unplugs. Yeah. Great Absolutely. advice. Great advice, Keith. Thanks so much. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? We'll send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. So Keith here, as we wrap up in part three, Really, the question on the table is, uh, what can we do differently, both as parents, as school, to really raise up a generation of godly boys who become godly men? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, I have this question a lot from, um, well, it's funny, from moms, <laughs> mm -hmm. but moms and dads. And one of the, you know, I often challenge them. I say, well, three things to think about, you know, because we could answer this a hundred ways, but three things to think about. You know, the first is, if we want to be the loudest voice We've got to quiet some other influences in their life right now. By far, the biggest is technology. You know, the, the avenue of technology in the life of a boy is unbelievable. And it's, and it's really two ways. Earlier in life, it's through uh, gaming or watching YouTube or things like that, where it's not always that they're hearing bad things, but they're not hearing you because they are engrossed in something that we know the nature of it is addictive. We absolutely know it. As they get older, it becomes social media. And what happens is the early onboarding of gaming or YouTube, things like that, that gives the message to the young boy, 
this is good. And so their natural transition into social media is just, it's the skids are greased. And what happens then with that is by the time they're into social media, they have all of these other voices coming. And social media works on a very simple question. Every platform works on a very simple question. What can I show you next that will keep you on one minute longer? Mm. And we know the way the brain works without thinking about it. What do we pay better attention to? What do we pay attention to most easily? It's negative. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at social media, the longer someone is on, the content gets more negative, more, more divisive, more dysfunctional. It's a very simple format that all platforms are working on. And so I think we've got to realize, you know, we've got to calm those voices. We've got to deal with the digital footprint that's in our own home, the technology footprint, or it doesn't really matter what we're saying because they that is consuming our kids. So that's number one. Number two is there are things that we cannot teach very well within the four walls of our home. We have got to get our boys out into the physical world. The physical world of God's creation has a way of teaching life lessons, our experience in it, um, that we're just not going to learn reading in a book or talking about in our home. And especially for a male, the whole notion of of really approaching that one of the three identity uh, questions of am I capable the physical world has a way of letting a, a young man know I'm capable. I'm capable of existing in, in the challenge, in the adventure of the physical world. And we don't do that. We were a society today that has gotten very soft on what we entertain with. I go back to the first point about technology. Uh, most of the time you can't get a, a child outside because they're gaming uh, or they're on social media in the room by themselves. Yeah. And then the third thing is, and, and this can be really generational. We need to introduce our sons to men. Um, you know, I got to tell you, I, I think about my son's relationship with his two grandfathers, uh, one who has passed away uh, already. But, you know, the relationships growing up, seeing these two men who have lived a valuable life gives a picture of why wow, that's what it is to be someone of wisdom. Yeah, That's what it is to be someone who has raised and loved children and wives and, and we don't do that. You know, we've lost either being generational. Uh, we don't seem to value that as much as a culture uh, or at least practice it as much. But it, it, it can also go the other direction. Introducing our sons to young men that are peers, introducing our sons to young men in their church, whether it's mentors, deciding we're going to put our sons under the care of other quality men. You know, we could choose where our little boys play basketball. You know what I'm saying? In a rec league, be wise about the coaches you put up with. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the opportunity is there uh, to to expose them to other men. And well, I think we don't take it and we can. Well, and I think I often quote the the five to one ratio, Chap, Dr. Chap Clark's in his book, Sticky Faith. Uh, I just think when I read it yeah. years ago, I was like, okay, that just makes so much sense. Every one who stays on the path, continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to be a person of character, generally was influenced not by one wasn't just dad it was dad plus four other key male figures so yeah i think getting them into sports environments and not just generic any kind of club league thing but where who's influence who because the apples aren't falling far from the tree and that's the challenge so absolutely well in my experience as well when when dad takes the role yeah of being the primary voice then as these other men come along, they are echoing yeah. and adding to the message that was already started. Right. And that is so powerful versus 
having no message and then hearing a thousand messages coming right. at it's you. It's totally confusing. Right. Right. And I think this, again, I mean, just a general point, I think that, you know, the, the counterintuitive nature of the role of parents with regard to their involvement in the K-12 journey, you know, the, the hardest years and arguably are kind of that eighth grade through 12th in terms of where you really are needed most. It's counterintuitive because you're not driving carpool anymore. They're driving. Right. But that's also where I think men in particular back out. Like, okay, I, we did the whatever yeah. camping sports thing. Now they're kind of doing their own life. And, and, and I want them to kind of have independence while they're under my roof and all this stuff. Well, and th- like, and yeah. think of it. Yeah, yeah. Think of it this way. The, the, the biggest, the, the primary struggle of a child from zero to two is unmet needs. The primary struggle from eight to about 13 is what parents allow and, and, and calls in their life with responsibility and stuff. But the primary struggle from 13 up is as they begin to get engaged, the world of brokenness, the real world. And it's funny because even if we're very active where we should be as parents from eight to 12, eight to 13, we often take too large of a step back at 13 when we should be the mentors. Right, right. You know, our job there is giving meaning to everything we've taught them and helping them use the tools we've given them to now navigate a broken world and difficult relationships. And so we're needed. We're needed not in a way of controlling and dictating. We're needed in a way of walking the walk, walking the path with them yeah. for a period of time. Yeah, that's good. And and too many times we step out of that completely. Right. right. In in probably well intending, thinking, well, they've got their peers are more influential. They're probably driving. They have more independent. Again, we want to get baby bird out the nest and give them independence, but it's just it's too much, too fast. And to your point, in the in that yeah. area of the vo- the void occurs and the void gets filled with stuff you don't want it to be filled with. Right. So, so just kind of in conclusion, what we that's really kind of centric around family and parents. So, thinking again about the school, because this is always a diff, difficult position to be in, where they come strolling in, you know, Monday morning at seven a.m. or whatever, and yeah. we can only we can't control their home life or their parent life or their you know, men in right. their life moments and getting outside and all that. What can a school do? Um, to to support that, or maybe even in some cases have to supplement yeah, it when it's I, not there. Go ahead. I, I think I, I'll give you three things. Number one, for the grammar school and even up into middle school, uh, I, I love it when, I, and I know many schools that do this, they have a focus on what things like chivalry is and what courage is that's really focused on the boys to let them know, you know, we are, God calls you to step up and he calls you to step up in a certain way. And give definition to that. Number one, so I think in the academic realm, we can speak into character development with definition, yeah. with understanding of what those things mean. But two others, um, I have seen immense value in schools when they're able to connect juniors and seniors, as an example, with grammar school students. Now, this is this is true both male and female, but the power of having a, I'll give you a great example. Um, in our school for a period of time, we had a seven foot two kid. We also had state and national championships in basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, great guy. Um, do you know how cool it is when he had a kindergarten or first grade buddy? That kid can walk around the hall and his buddy is a seven foot two kid. That's right. unbelievable. You, you own the world. And right. You own the world. Yeah. My or my son, when he, you know, once once Brendan graduated, my son was then the tallest kid. Um, who's he's about six six, but his, his buddies, the younger guys that he had connections with. I got to tell you something, you know, and height is not the only thing. Those just stand out to me. But, you know, when you have a younger kid that can identify with a junior or senior in your school, 
they're getting a vision of what it means to be older. That's exactly and, and, right. And we need to give that. And then the third category would, would be um, pick your coaches wisely. You know, I mean, teachers have a process, but in so many schools, we don't always have a great process for hiring coaches. And, and I think we need to pick coaches well, because it's amazing the openings a coach has to speak into the life of a player. And I think that goes both for the girls and the boys, for the young men, for the young women. Um, but when you have coaches that truly embody what we believe is Christian character, uh, it, the openings they will have to speak into the lives of our children is unbelievable. Yeah. And too many times, and, and, and it's a necessity sometimes, you know, we pick the first warm body that wants to step up and coach. And while I'm not saying that's necessarily always a bad thing, I think we need to realize that our coaches have immense, immense space in the lives of our kids. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing. It well, really is. And I've seen many wonderful coaches speak into the lives of players. I think it's a good, it'd be an interesting exercise for a school and it's not similar for a family. It's just to lay out, here's a 24 hour period. They're asleep for this much. They're in these environments. Like where are the environments across the board? And as a school, we think a lot more about those 50 minute classroom moments and hiring yeah. good teachers to your point, but who's, you know, who's out there overseeing recess, you know, it's a volunteer person or is it some, I mean, is there, are there, are there other moments we could redeem? And I think the biggest thing, love your opinion on the house program, because I think it's probably the biggest instrument it's, for creating culture in, in classical Christian schools. It's that the house program is the other thing that I've seen that allows younger students to connect in meaningful ways to older students. Yeah. Uh, because it, it in an organizational way is just that. And it's that whole notion of, I think of young men, some of the things we've lost in raising boys today are rites of passage. I mean, uh, you know, getting your first wallet, getting your first pocket knife, you know, getting your learners. I mean, these things, I mean, 40% of learner eligible teenagers today do not get their learners when they're supposed to. Can't imagine. That is unbelievable. I, I, I would have lied about my I, age. I had a fever of 101. And when I got my license, I didn't right. care. I was going to get that thing. You're right. It's right. totally different. Yep. And, and a house system builds in, in a sense, a rite of passage to the next stage. And so what that does when you do it, it makes that next stage valuable. You know, when you tell a young boy, you can't have a pocket knife until you, these three things are happening. It makes that pocket knife more valuable. But you're also now shaping character. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and so those yep. things matter. They do matter. And again, it's it's a built in. It's positive peer pressure. It's it's now you're aspiring not to be a goofball when you're in high school, but to actually right. have that be the kid that's got character and dignity in the hallway. Well, yeah. So. We're, think of it this way. We're we're called to prepare our children to be good members of a community. I mean, that's really what we're called to ultimately to God's community. And we start that in the community in the home, and then it's the community in the school, and it's we're teaching them to be good members of the community. So it's, uh, you know, your word peer pressure, it's, it's even stronger than that. It's the whole community. It's the notion of what does it mean to be a good member? Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I go back to the question of, is, the, is a Christian classical education, is that school process appropriate for boys? Absolutely. Yeah. Because it actually onboards them very well. And what does it really look like to be a young man? Yeah. in God's community. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I can't think of a stronger word. I mean, I can't imagine, well, look at where our culture is today. I mean, to be able to put a, in a, 
a young man in a 16,000 hour, 13 year journey, you have the best chance anywhere else of raising up somebody who is, you know, confident in who they are and their masculinity and their place and culture. So, well, Keith, thanks so much. This is, we'll have to come back and talk about classical Christian girls at some point. We probably aren't qualified for that fully. We'll have to get some help in that, but uh, (laughs) I would agree. (laughs) uh, But, but as always, so good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for all you do. And uh, look forward to having you back on very soon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davy's daughter, Hannah, here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.